0: The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Well, uh, I want you to think for a second: Who is uh, someone you know <clears throat> that you cannot ever imagine them becoming a Christian? All right. Think about that for just a second. Who is someone you know or who is someone that you can think of that you just, you can't ever imagine it happening? We start on the grand scale, maybe a world leader, um, a famous person that you follow, an influencer of some kind, a politician, a movie star, a professor, but then bring it in just a a little closer, right? Maybe someone who you work with who has... um, Very different ideas about the world than you. Or um, a neighbor who maybe thinks differently about sexuality and gender than you. A friend who you've shared the gospel with and discussed Jesus with who seems maybe very set in their ways. Or a family member, maybe who's walked and continues to walk a very dark, dark path. Uh, for some of you, it might, it might be you, right? Like, you can actually be here this morning and, and kind of be going through the motions and, and look the part and all of that and, and still, deep inside your heart, be thinking, man, <clears throat> I, I don't know. Like, I, I don't think like, I could ever really, truly, truly become a Christian. Who is someone you can think of, someone you know, who you think there's just no way that person could become a Christian. Now, ask yourself this. Um, what would have to be true of the gospel in order for that to be true? Hmm? What would have to be true of the gospel to be able to say, there's just, there's just no way for that person? What would have to be true of God? Or one layer deeper, what, what would have to be true of your own heart to ever even think that way? In our passage in Romans 11 today, Paul's addressing these kinds of questions. He's, he was addressing, see, a very practical issue in the church in Rome. One of the reasons that he wrote the letters, right here. Listen to how commentator Douglas Moo summarizes this for us. He says, Paul makes clear that the argument in these verses has a practical purpose. He scolds Gentile Christians in Rome for their arrogant boasting over the Jews. Here surfaces what was probably one of the most basic purposes of the letter to the Romans. Gentiles have become the majority in the church at Rome as well as in the church at large. They are tempted to take undue pride in their new position. Even to the extent of thinking that they have now replaced the Jews in God's plans. Paul disabuses them of this notion, showing that by an act of sheer grace they've been added to Israel. Boasting is out of the question. Boasting is out of the question then because their own salvation is part of God's plan to offer his mercy to all people. See, there's a lot, there's a lot going on in the church in Rome. And in particular, the mixing of, of Gentile Christians and Jewish ones. And Paul's gonna warn them in chapter 14 of the, 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 the conflict that was going on between them. He's gonna warn them to stop judging each other and don't destroy the work of God in bringing them all in. In chapter 15, he's going to say, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Do you hear it? Live in harmony with one another. Why does he have to say that? Well, because they were struggling to live in harmony with one another. That's why. With one voice, glorify God, because there were divisions. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you, all for the glory of God. Let's see? See, Paul has been laboring this point, hasn't he? All throughout the book of Romans, there's no distinction between you. No distinction. Jew, Gentile, it's the same Lord who bestows his riches upon all who call on him. Paul's not ashamed of the gospel, he told us, remember, because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, but also the Greek. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And it's only by God's grace that anyone is saved. He said that uh, about the, the Jews in Romans 9 and Romans 10, even the first part of chapter 11, explaining how it was that only some of the Jews were turning to trust in Christ. Remember this? Today now he turns to the Gentiles and he addresses the Gentiles directly. We see it in verse 13. He says, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. And this whole, his whole big point in this section of Romans 11 is to say to them all, Gentiles in particular, that God is working his brilliant plan to offer his mercy to all people so that he gets the glory and no one can boast. That's the big idea of our passage today here in Romans 11, verses 11 through 24, that God is working his brilliant plan To offer his mercy to all people so that he gets the glory and no one can boast. And it's a marvelous plan. As we reflect upon the plan, he also reveals our tendency to boast, our tendency toward pride, our tendency toward thinking that somehow someone we know is somehow beyond God's ability to save them. And then Paul closes out correcting us in our pride. By showing us something about the kindness and the severity of God. That's our outline. We'll take it under those headings this morning. Number one, God's brilliant plan. Number two, our tendency towards pride. And number three, the kindness and the severity of God. First, God's brilliant plan. Uh, Paul begins this section with a question. Doesn't This is common for Paul. He likes to do this. If we remember back to chapter 11, verse 1, he asked, Has God rejected his people? Remember that? Has he rejected ethnic Israel? Is he done with them? By no means, he answered back in verse 1. God hasn't rejected his people. No, he is redeeming a remnant, we saw. And he talked about those who rejected the gospel and are hardened, the elect, he said in verse 7. That's the Bible's word. We didn't make that up. It's in here, right? The elect, the chosen, those saved by God's free and sovereign grace, they obtained it, they obtained right standing with God, but the rest were hardened. That was all last week. Verse 9 spoke of the stumbling block. They've stumbled. But it wasn't just this, you know, whoopsie accident. We were told back in verse 9 that there was a retribution that was involved there. There. That word's there in verse 9 too. In other words, in their pride, in the unbelieving Jews' pride, in their seeking to establish their own righteousness, in their unbelief they stumbled. And so they're responsible. And in that stumbling, they were hardened, we're told. So now as we begin verse 11, the question becomes, okay then, is, is that it? Uh, did they stumble in order that they might fall. See, there's a difference between stumbling and falling. The more clumsy among us know the difference, right? You've stumbled before and not fallen, caught you. Whoa, that was close, almost went down. You can stumble and not fall. And the falling that Paul has in mind here is sort of like the, uh, the life alarm commercials from the 90s. Remember the life alarm commercials in the 90s? I've fallen and What? can't get up everybody knows that everybody knows that that's what that's what Paul is asking here have the unbelieving Jews fallen and they can't get up or are they down for the count is there no hope for them at all anymore and he answers in verse 11 just like he's answered in verse 1 by no means absolutely not he says and then he goes on to tell of the brilliant plan of God and issue some warnings. But jump all the way down to verse 23 in chapter 11 with me because he gives a fuller answer to this question down there. And in this way, verse 11 up here at the top and verse 23 down here at the bottom becomes bookends for us, for our text today, for this Q&A that's here. Again, the question, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Are, they, are the unbelieving, hard-hearted Jews down for the count? By no means, he says. And then verse 23 even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you, Gentiles, if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? In other words, if they'll repent, if they'll turn from their unbelief and instead trust Jesus, which is the only way anyone's saved, right? If that happens, God will bring them back in. He's got the power to do that. If he's grafted you in, Gentiles, he can can bring them back in too. If he saved you, he can save them. In fact, he says in some ways it's even easier. God is powerful and faithful to save anyone, anyone. No distinction who calls upon Christ and Christ alone for salvation they've stumbled but that doesn't mean that they've fallen and can't get up it's not a total knockout rather it's all integrated in God's brilliant plan his brilliant plan to offer his mercy to all people so that he gets the glory and no one can boast and Paul tells us about this plan doesn't he This is really important stuff. Paul is giving us a a theological understanding of history here in verses 11 and 12. Look at verse 11 again. He says, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? You see what Paul's saying here? He's making theological sense of history. He, He says, what happened to the Jews is part of the great plan God has always had to include the Gentiles. And now, continuing the plan, God is seeking to provoke Israel to jealousy by the Gentiles, so some of them will come to believe too. Let's go through that order again. First, there's the rejection of the gospel by the unbelieving Jews. So the gospel goes out. The Jews hear it. There's a rejection by a lot of them. It's the rejection of the gospel by the unbelieving Jews. Second, through that rejection, through Israel's stumbling, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Third, Gentile salvation, as a part of the plan, works to make Israel jealous. Paul says, "Okay, so when the unbelieving Jews—this how it's supposed to work? When the unbelieving Jews see the Gentiles enjoying the blessings of salvation, reconciliation to God, forgiveness of their sins, their love, their joy, their peace through the Holy Spirit—right? They, they're going to want in on it too. And so forth. Some unbelieving Jews will repent and believe." And be saved. Are we tracking together here? Paul is giving us a sequence. He, he's theologically explaining history. There's stages that he's describing here. And it's all part of God's brilliant plan to offer his mercy to all people. Their trespass. Israel's trespass has meant riches for the world, verse 12 now. Through their failure to believe has come riches to the Gentiles. And so how much more, Paul asks, will their full inclusion mean? Now those words, their full inclusion, get dicey, all right? We're gonna tackle that a little bit more next week, but for now let me say that I'm convinced that it means the full number of Jews who trust in Jesus over time across all ages. Some think it means the full inclusion of all living Jews at some point in the future. I don't think that's exactly what Paul has in mind here. I think Paul is addressing a particular problem of his day. A particular problem that continues on to ours, namely, what do we make out of unbelieving Jews? God's Old Testament people. What do we make of them is what we what we make of them is what we make of any unbeliever now. If they turn to Jesus and trust in Jesus, they'll be saved by Jesus they do not continue in their unbelief, Paul says, verse 23, they'll be grafted in. If we keep reading verse 13 now, Paul builds upon this. Paul takes his theological understanding of history, this theological understanding of history he's laid out, and he applies it as a theological understanding of his ministry. He sees his work as an apostle as a part of God's brilliant plan. Look at verse 13. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Why? In order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? By life from the dead here, he probably has in mind something like what he writes in Ephesians 2 and how we were dead in our trespasses and sins and yet have been made alive together with Christ. We've been saved by grace. In other words, as the unbelieving Jews turn to Jesus, they will experience nothing less than the very same new life in Christ. You see what Paul's doing here? He's making theological sense out of history for us. He's letting us in on God's brilliant plan, and he's even framing his own ministry within that plan, within the sequence. It's a sequence he's seen played out over and over again. One example will suffice, but there's three or four of these in the book of Acts. But in Acts chapter 13, when when Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch, Pisidia, they, they, they go into the synagogue. They preach the gospel of Jesus. And then picking up in Acts 13, verse 44, we read, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, and he quotes Isaiah 49 I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Verse 48 And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, do you see it? The sequence? First, the gospel was preached to the Jews in their very own synagogue, but they rejected it. Now, think for a second what would have happened if they didn't. But can you imagine if all the Jews would have been converted in every synagogue, in every town? We would have had a revival amongst the Jews. Sure, but we wouldn't have had salvation for all, would we? We wouldn't have a multi-ethnic movement of God's grace throughout the whole world. So first, the gospel is preached to the Jews, but most of them reject it. Second, through that rejection, through Israel's stumbling, Paul turns to the Gentiles, preaching to the Gentiles, and we see salvation come to the Gentiles. They rejoice and glorify the word of the Lord. Now third, Paul tells us in Romans 11, Gentile salvation, as a part of the plan, is to work to make Israel jealous so that they'll turn. This is why I magnify my ministry, he says, in order to make some of my fellow Jews, my my kinsmen according to the flesh, those who have a deep sorrow and unceasing anguish for, remember? I magnify my ministry in order to make some of them jealous and thus, step four, save some of them. to to see them be born again and receive life from death, And some of them did. Some of the Jews did. Not all, but not none. There were many Jews who came to faith in the time of the New Testament, and therefore we see God's plan go forth and offer of his mercy to all people to the ends of the earth, all nations, a multi-ethnic movement of grace to all peoples everywhere. So look, Paul has given us a theological understanding of history, a theological understanding of his ministry, and now in verse 16, he gives us two metaphors for this theological understanding. All right, again, anybody need to stretch? Anybody need a sigh? Coffee refill? We can stop. We can take a little break if we need to. We good? Keep going. All right, verse 16, the two metaphors that he gives us for the theological understanding. He says, If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, there's a lot of interpretations of that verse. All right, I'm just telling you, I've read them all. Most of them, I think. All ones I get my hands on. Um, Paul says at the end of the chapter, right, who has known the mind of the Lord? Well, right here, it kind of feels like who has known the mind of Paul, all right? Um, lots of interpretations. Let me just give you mine, okay? Uh, the dough metaphor here. Uh, Paul is drawing actually from some imagery from Numbers chapter 15, where a piece of dough was baked into a loaf, and made to be an offering to the Lord. And in that way, the whole lump of the dough that the piece was from is considered holy. The whole lump. In this metaphor, the dough offered is as first fruits, as holy, I believe, is the believing Jews. All believing Jews up to and including Paul's day. The root in the second metaphor is the same. See, Paul isn't trying to illustrate two different things here. He gives us two different metaphors to illustrate the same thing. The first fruits of the dough and the root are one and the same, part of the whole. They're holy, set apart. That's what that word means, set apart. But the second half of the metaphor is what he wants to stress. See, he's saying it's it's not just the unbelieving Jews who have been set apart. I'm sorry, he's saying it's not just the believing Jews who have been set apart by God. The whole lump, all the branches, are all a part of God's plan too. His brilliant plan to offer his mercy to all people so that he gets the glory and no one boasts. You say, what, what plan are you talking about here? The plan that consists of the gospel going to the Jews and then to the Gentiles And now back to the Jews. See, Paul is saying, in a sense, God has used the Jews in order to save Gentiles. It's not just the believing Jews, the first fruits of the dough, the root that are holy, set apart for God's use in his plan. The whole lump. It's all the branches too. Even the unbelieving ones, God's using it. Through their trespass, remember, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And you might hear that and say, goodness, I, boy, I don't know if i like to think about God doing it that way. But has the potter no right over the clay? To make out of the same, what's the word? Lump. One vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. It's all part of his brilliant plan. See, remember the context here. Are are the unbelieving Jews, are they down for the count? Absolutely not, Paul has said. God is using their unbelief, he's using their hard and hardened hearts, he's even involved in that. He's working through it to bring the gospel and salvation to the Gentiles. They're not down for the count. The whole lump of them are a part of the plan. And any of them can get in on salvation found in Jesus if they do not continue in their unbelief. In fact, that would complete the circle. This is God's brilliant plan. And Paul writes of it here. Goodness, we might want to check on that. Paul writes of, of God's brilliant plan here not to try to like rewrite history and give God an out. He writes it here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to make sense of his history. To make sense out of history theologically. And he writes of it here to chastise the Gentiles. This brings us to our second point, our tendency towards pride. See, there's a great tendency... For those saved by grace, to forget that we were saved by grace. A great tendency. It's present in our day. It's present in Paul's. We see it in our day explicitly and implicitly when, when things are said or, or sometimes assumed or, or get sort of baked into a culture. You got to look a certain way. You got to behave a certain way. You got to agree on these secondary theological issues the same way. You, you got to vote a certain way or school your kids a certain way or do church a certain way or, or be like, you know, older than 30 or younger than 30 or, or something like that. If, otherwise, you're not really a Christian. This isn't new. But there's always been a great tendency for those saved by grace to forget that they were saved by grace. Look at verse 17 in our text. And remember verse 13. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, he said. Verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off, okay, those would be the unbelieving Jews. And you, although a wild olive shoot, believing Gentiles, were grafted in among the others, believing Jews. It's like we need a cross reference here, right? And now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Again, he's addressing Gentile Christians and he's saying, you who were not God's people have been grafted into God's people. Now sharing in the nourishing root of this tree, sharing in all the blessings benefiting from the history of God's Old Testament people and the covenants and the law and the worship and the promises, benefiting from generations upon generations of of faithful Israelites who did trust by faith. If that's who you are, and it is, believing Gentiles, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Do you see that in verse 18? Now, why would Paul have to say that? Well, because it was a problem in the church in Rome. They weren't getting along, remember? He has to exhort them in in chapter 15. He has to remind them repeatedly there's no distinction. And here he chastises them for their pride against the believing Jews. And he goes on and he says, "If, if you are... If you are arrogant, because some of them were, remember, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Remember, the only way that you got in was through them. Remember the plan. Then you will say, well, branches were broken off so that I would be brought in. That's true, Paul says, they were broken off. They are broken off because of their unbelief but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. Fear. In other words, if you start to to puff yourself up and think you deserve to be in and them out, you're actually expressing the very same unbelief that they did that got them broken off to begin with. This is what Paul is saying of the unbelieving Jews back in chapter 10, being ignorant of the righteousness of God. Remember chapter 10? And seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. See, to be arrogant about your righteousness is no different than being ignorant of the righteousness of God. I'll say that again. To be arrogant about your righteousness is no different than being ignorant of the righteousness of God. If you're arrogant about your righteousness, you are ignorant of the righteousness of God. You've somehow established your own righteousness. You're no longer trusting in Christ alone for your righteousness. You've grown self-righteous, which is no righteousness at all. You've developed your own rationale for why you belong or you've added to the righteousness of God. That's pride. That's arrogance. You're thinking you're something special. You think you deserve what you got. And if you think you deserve what you've got, you actually don't have what you think you got. I mean, who? Who do you think you are? And how do you think you got there? That's what Paul's asking the Gentile Christians who are puffing themselves up a bit. And he chastises them. Don't be arrogant. Stand fast through faith. It's faith that matters. Faith in Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation. It's not our works. It's not your record or your pedigree or your awesomeness. No one can boast. Do not become proud. Fear God. Fear God. You know, when I first became a Christian, um, even when we first planted two pillars, I was a wild olive shoot, right? Um, Came to faith at age 22, and I remember... Maybe this is some of your story too. I remember as I learned more and more about the gospel and grace, I remember growing critical of folks who had been in church all their life. Or all my life. I remember thinking, they don't get it. I get it. They don't get it. And then I started learning theology, right? And then I really got puffed up a little bit. It's like, they don't even understand baptism, you know? When we first planted two pillars, I was pretty arrogant. This is all secondary application here because the other churches in our city that I was arrogant toward weren't, they weren't the unbelieving Jews, okay? But I think it still makes the point I was arrogant and God had to humble me. I I needed to hear, don't be arrogant. Don't become proud. Fear God. Like, your way is not the only way, Todd. There's lots of faithful churches led by faithful pastors full of faithful Christians in this city. In my pride, I, I don't think I probably really believed that 13 years ago. Who did I think I was? Some of you in this room, especially if you came to Christ later in life and are, are very steeped in the, the gospel and how it saves sinners, right? Like you, like me. You might find yourself, you might find in yourself a pride and an and arrogance towards those who've been walking with Christ for decades. A pride towards those who grew up in the church or who are far older than you and have a little different approach to the practicals of living out their faith than you do. And God's word would say to you this morning, don't become proud. Fear God. It works in the other direction too, doesn't it? The older we get, the more we can question the faith of those who are brand new to it. And in our arrogance, all we can see is their arrogance. (laughs) All of us need to hear it this morning, don't we? Don't grow proud. Stand fast through faith. Faith alone for salvation. For yourself. For others. For others older than you. Younger than you. More conservative than you. More progressive than you. More neat and tidy than you. More rough around the edges than you. Fear God. Fear God. Verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Now, listen, on the surface, that sounds like you can lose your salvation right there, doesn't it? But it can't mean that. Paul just spent all of Romans 8 telling us how eternally secure we are in Christ. And that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is he now saying that you can lose it? No. You can't lose your salvation but you can not fake it. See, the natural branches here in verse 21 that he's talking about, those weren't believers. They didn't lose their salvation. They weren't believers. They were the natural branches that were broken off. Why were they broken off? Because they didn't believe. They didn't pursue righteousness by faith. They didn't submit to God's righteousness. They didn't obey the gospel. And if you're prideful, if you're full of pride over the fact that you're in, if you're a puffed up and pride-filled Christian, if you persist in that, you'll reveal that you don't actually believe either. Self-righteousness and Christ's righteousness cannot ultimately coexist. To be arrogant about your righteousness is no different than being ignorant to the righteousness of God, rejecting the righteousness of God, saying no thanks, actually, to the righteousness of God offered through Christ alone for salvation. If you persist in that, you'll be cut off. Not as a believer in Christ who's lost his salvation, rather you'll be revealed to be someone who was never truly trusting in Christ alone for salvation to begin with. There's going to there, there be some on the last day, Jesus said, who say to him, Lord, Lord. And what's Jesus going to say? Away from me, I never knew you. Don't grow proud. Fear God. How do we do that? Well, by reflecting upon and holding together simultaneously the kindness and severity of God. Not one or the other. Both. Both. God's kindness and his severity. Look at verse 22. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Note this, Paul says. Note it. If you're here and you're a Christian, you're to note you to reflect upon the kindness of God, God's kindness towards you, provided you continue in it, provided you persevere. And again, that's not a warning that you can lose your salvation. It's Paul's way of saying perseverance is itself the proof that you were truly saved. So note the kindness shown to you, provided you continue in it. Otherwise, you too will be cut off, exposed of your unbelief. But note also the severity of God. His kindness and his severity. Noting both, remembering both, reflecting on both. That's what keeps us humble. So much of Christianity gets itself into trouble when when we lose the and here. Just kindness, no severity, Leads us to presuming upon God's grace and only focusing on the love of God. Focusing only on severity and no kindness presents a God who is angry and punishing but not gentle and lowly. When he both to stay properly humble. See, we know that it is in God's kindness and grace that he's given us what we don't deserve, salvation. We don't deserve that. And we know that it's in God's severity and yet mercy that he hasn't given us what we do deserve, eternal damnation. You and I, we are far more sinful and far more undeserving than we can ever imagine. And God is far more holy than we will ever know or understand. And yet in Christ, in Christ, in his love and kindness, we are accepted, we are loved, far more accepted, far more forgiven, far more loved than we can ever comprehend. We've been grafted in only through the work of Christ. Where on the cross, we see God's kindness and severity put on display. Both. God's kindness because Jesus died there for us. God's severity because upon Jesus was brought the chastisement of us all. He was pierced for our transgressions, even our pride. He was crushed for our iniquities, all of them. He bore the wrath that we deserved. He's our substitute. He went there in our place. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, with his wounds were healed. When you believe that, when you believe in Christ alone for righteousness, you're grafted in. And you won't boast about it. The only boast you have is in Him. See, when you really understand it, what you'll say is, Christ saved me, and I didn't do anything. Christ saved me, and I didn't deserve it. Christ saved me, and I, I didn't earn it. And if Christ saved me, He can save anyone. Anyone. This is Paul's point to the Gentile Christians who were getting a little bigger than their britches with respect to the unbelieving Jews. Back to verse 23. And even they, the unbelieving Jews, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into the cultivated olive tree... How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? In other words, hey, Gentiles, (laughs) if he's done it with you, he can do it with anyone. God has the power to graft anyone into his tree. So who's someone that you can think of? Hmm? someone you know, who you think, there's just no way that person could become a Christian. The answer, my friends, ought to be no one. No one. The gospel would have to be a gospel of unattainable works, a gospel of self-righteousness in order for it to be true that they couldn't get in. There'd have to be some way that they could screw it up. And never be able to get in. God would have to be less than all powerful. And Paul just told us he's powerful to graft anyone in. He'd have to be unmerciful. He'd have to be ungracious. Listen, for you to ever even think that way would reveal pride. Arrogance pride and arrogance in your own heart over how you or anyone ever gets grafted in to begin with. But listen, friends, pride wilts in the atmosphere of the true gospel. The gospel that we're not ashamed of because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Like, our God is able to do Far more abundantly than all that we ask or think to ask. He is mighty to save. He has been and is now and continues working his brilliant plan to offer his mercy to all people so that he gets the glory and none of us can boast. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We Thank you for your brilliant plan of which we are the beneficiaries of. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for how you've worked in history to bring us, us Gentiles, into your fold. God, would you guard us from any pride in our hearts? Would you remind us of your severity and kindness? Help us look even right now to the cross. Help us look now and always to Christ alone for salvation and to know and to trust there is no one you can't save. Empower us with that and embolden us to keep on sharing the gospel. See more and more people grafted into your beautiful tree of salvation and eternal life. We pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.